This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities regulatory and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. This is Kurt Wolf, and unfortunately, I am flying solo today. It's a shame that Chris can't be here with us because we have got a great show, a great guest really lined up to talk about the role of financial advisors, the duty of care they owe their clients, and of course, Chris's favorite topic, regulation best interest. So without any further ado, let me introduce our guest. We are joined today by Knut Rostat. He is the co-founder and president of the Institute for the Fiduciary Standard, a not-for-profit think tank formed for the purpose of preserving, protecting, and defending fiduciary principles in investment and financial advice. More on the Institute in just a couple of minutes. Before he founded the Institute for the Fiduciary Standard, Knut served as the Regulatory and Compliance Officer at Rembert Pendleton Jackson, an investment advisor in Falls Church, Virginia. Knut is a recognized thought leader in the advisor industry. He writes frequently on the role of fiduciary principles, including the ebook Fiduciary Common Sense. He's been cited in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, Reuters, and other industry outlets like with our friends over at Investment News. Knut was also honored in 2021 by the Fiduciary Standard Committee as Fiduciary of the Year. And in 2014, IA Magazine named him one of the 25 most influential people in and around the advisor industry. Knut, we are excited to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm absolutely delighted to be here and thank you for inviting me. Let's, uh, let's get started. Let's jump right in. One of the things we like to do, Canute, when we have folks like you who come from a membership organization or an industry advocacy group or a think tank is just talk a little bit about what it is they do day to day, what their organization does. So as I mentioned, the Institute for the Fiduciary Standard, which was founded in 2011, exists to preserve, protect, and defend fiduciary principles in investment advice and financial planning. I just want to set a, a quick baseline. A fiduciary is an individual or firm that occupies a special position of trust and confidence. It is the highest standard of conduct that is expected under the law. Simply put, a fiduciary must act in the best interest of his or her clients without regard to the fiduciary's own financial interest. So I just I wanted to set that baseline for listeners, make sure we're all kind of singing from the same sheet of music. And, and with that background, I'll go ahead and be quiet. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the Institute, why are you focused on promoting a fiduciary standard and to whom should it apply? Sure. Well, listen, thank you again, Kurt. The Institute was founded in, in 2011, and it was founded at a time when the SEC was just taking up the issue of whether and how broker-dealers should be, should be held to a fiduciary standard. So that's why we came into being. And we came into being to form a legal entity that was solely dedicated to this singular mission and involved in, in nothing else. And we, we advance our mission by through, through policy research, through education, and through advocacy towards regulators, policymakers, advisors themselves, and to some degree to investors as well. So that's what we do, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis. We just we just completed fiduciary September. I think you're going to come and come back to that later on, and you know that's a a good snapshot of of who's involved in what in our activities and what sorts of issues within the fiduciary realm that we focus on. Yeah, thanks for that overview. Uh, overview. We we definitely will talk a little bit about fiduciary September. I think towards the end, I want to I want to leave that for folks to to circle back to so they can learn more about the institute sure. and and some of the helpful information that you that you're putting out into the world. I, I know among your priorities or you know the institute's priorities over the past several years has been 
regulation best interest. Uh, and, and it's something that I think sort of hits hits people differently, kind of depending on your, your perspective or, or your view of the world. You know, we've talked about it a bunch here on this podcast. Chris and I often joke, I think we've talked about it on something like 25 of our 77 episodes so far. It, it really has been something that we've been focusing on and, and think of, about as something our, our listeners care a lot about. You know, for anybody who is just tuning in for the first time or isn't familiar, essentially regulation best interest was one of three rules or, or regulatory interpretations that was announced in June 2019 that applied to brokers or investment advisors. And essentially what the, the package did together, I'll, I'll quote Jay Clayton here, but what he says the package did was bring the legal requirements and mandated disclosures for broker dealers and investment advisors in line with reasonable investor expectations. Now they take a little bit of a different tack with respect to brokers and investment advisors through that rulemaking package. But Kenita, I wanna pause there just to see if there are any aspects of a Reg BI or the fiduciary interpretation that you would highlight, or if you would just otherwise describe that package differently. Right. Okay. Well, yes, I I will absolutely describe it differently than does the SEC describe it. But I, I want to go back just for half a step because I I sort of jumped over this in in my earlier remarks about why we exist in what we do. We we don't use the the terminology that you use that that uh, you know that that we that we use in terms of are preserving, protecting, and defending fiduciary principles because in our view, fiduciary principles for the last 25 years have been under severe attack by the regulators themselves led by the SEC and in a separate way, in a different way from the industry. So they those words are chosen, chosen for a purpose and, and, and with meaning. You know, our purpose, frankly, is to not have fiduciary duties for the, the fiduciary concept go the way of the dodo bird or go the way of dinosaurs, because that is exactly where we're headed now based on what the SEC has done. So I want to sort of use that as a backdrop in terms of your question about Reg BI, because it's, it is closely related. Reg BI that came out in June 2019, as you say, in our view, was, was in a material way 10 years in the making and 10 years in the making by the SEC, starting with Chairman Shapiro in, in 2009, when one day after, and because, because of where, you know, where you're sitting, Kurt, you, you certainly remember and know this, one day after the Treasury Department announced its white paper, Chairman Shapiro ran up to New York City and got in front of the New York Writers Association and gave this speech about how wonderful fiduciary duties are and how great it is and how, you know, how she was so excited about it. But then in, in the speech, and you will, you, again, you will remember, she said, oh, by the way, there's not a great deal of difference between what brokers do and advisors do. And that should have been a flashing red light that every RIA in the land should have said, should have stood up and said, oh, Chairman Shapiro, what do you mean by that? Because that was huge. And what she meant by that, and I have, I have labeled it the doctrine of apparent similarities, some such thing. What she said, if, 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 if two different entities look alike, they should be regulated alike. That's essentially what she said. And, you know, from a legal point of view, I, I, you know, I, and again, you know, not very many people stand up and say this because, and you know this, Kurt, how many people advance in their career by criticizing the SEC? But she, she was, she merited criticism because it was an absurd and bizarre doctrine that she said. If two different entities appear to be the same, they should be regulated the same. And that has driven from 2009 to 2019, where Jay Clayton got us with the final rule. And I think that, that explains a lot. So I, so I, that's where I, how I look at it and, and say that. So when you say, you know, what is, what is it about the, the Reg BI? I say almost everything about it is wrong. Almost everything about it is, is inconsistent with, with precedent, is not in the investor's best interest. And, you know, is, so that's, that's where I start. And I think that's the case, that's the case that we, that we make. And, you know, the, 
the and and again, you, one of the wonderful things about so, some of this, t- in my mind, is you don't have to be a scholar, you don't have to be a securities attorney to understand the basic principles that have been so so completely violated by Reg BI. And what I mean by that is, you anybody can go back and look at and <laughs> and look at the case of 1963, the Supreme Court, and read those about four pages about why do we have fiduciary advice? What purpose does it serve? And it's it's pretty clear. It to me that case is sort of legal legal doctrine at its best because. The, the guy on Main Street can read it and pretty much understand it. And that's why I go back to that case all the time because, because of that. So that's sort of the baseline where, where we start on this and, and in terms of what should fiduciary mean in terms of how it's interpreted. And we look at Reg BI and, and it's, it's wrong in about every possible way that you can say. And, the, and, and again, in that same effort to go and look at the the form CRS that to me is the poster child of this ten year effort that culminates in Reg BI and 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 what's so special about form CRS and I've been Kurt I have been approached I have been contacted by allies in our fiduciary effort and say Knut why the hell are you paying so much attention to form CRS and <laughs> because they say. That nobody nobody understands what what fiduciary means, and if they read it, they don't understand the form. So what's the big deal? And I say, are you kidding me? Do you really believe what you have said? Because what the big deal is, they have effectively banned the word fiduciary from what is alleged to be the most important disclosure for from for IAs and BDs. And so that is to me the poster child. That's the image that people should remember when they try to think about how bad uh, Reg BI is. And so, what Reg B, what what that represents is is the fact that uh, the SEC has in Reg BI uh, harmonized the standards in a way that we certainly didn't conceive of. RIAs, I don't think, conceived of ten or twelve years ago when this effort began. They reg, you know, they have harmonized the standards a so that brokers, dealers, and investment advisors appear to be virtually the same, sort of like identical twins you can think of, you know, and that's the way that the SEC has done. And in doing that, they have concealed what is the core business of the broker dealer. And I'm, you know, I don't use that word conceal lightly, but there is nowhere to be found, as far as I can see, in Reg BI, the explanation that Broker dealers exist for a purpose, and their purpose is to do two things. It is either to execute trades or it is to distribute products. But that doesn't exist. That has been erased from the erased from the record. And that to me is sort of the epitome of what Reg BI is and why it's so terribly wrong. And that the result of that and it, and is that you know is that a, a well-educated consumer can read a, a form CRS and think, huh, okay, this is the situation. And they have been misled. They have been grossly misled about what, how a BD and an IA are different. And that creates confusion. I, you know, there's a whole nother session. I don't know whether you've done your sessions on investor confusion. My goodness, I could, I could feel a whole hour on that alone because of what, what has happened there. But that investor confusion, you know, it, 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 it is dealt with today that it's sort of a given. And, you know, my, my friends, my friends RIA say, you know what, you know, it's a given what you can't do anything about it. And I, the, the worse than that, frankly, Kurt, is that I think that if you were to get a, a candid assessment among the SEC staff around a table in that building, they would say, they would throw up their hands and say, gosh, we've tried so hard, we've tried so hard, but investors are still confused, and what can we do? And I think that many of them actually believe that in their hearts, and I think that they've, they have basically misled themselves to believe that, that they can't do anything about it, because, because actually, when you look at some of the SEC's own data, it suggests that investors do understand far more than the SEC gives them credit for. And they and the basis for their confusion 
is is actually bad information. It's it is the it's what they're being told, which it, that is confusing to them by the either the industry or the SEC, as opposed to being told some being told or being informed or being disclosed of of basic facts, and they don't understand them. Those are two different things, and that that is that is constantly confused. But what is missing from this picture, which my which my many friends in RIAs, I think, sometimes forget, is that the the harm, the damage, is not just that fa- the fact that investors are confused and they, and they make bad decisions, and that is true. The harm and the damage, and you know, you go back to the Investment Advisors Act and the 1963 court case, and the Supreme Court says it there: the harm and the damage is to real fiduciary advisors. Real fiduciary advisors are basically are, are given a bad rap. Because they're thrown in with bad, with bad advisors, and that piece of it seems to be forgotten by many of my friends in the RIA community because they they're not sure why they should be concerned about what we see have today, why the SEC is has done what it's done. I, I I don't I believe that they don't they they're not sure why it should it should matter to them, and it should matter to them because every single time. A, a whether it's an RIA or whether it's a, a BD betrays an investor, they are besmirched. They themselves are uh, are harmed by this. But you know that's not the way they look at it. So that that's my short response <laughs> to what's, what's wrong with RI with Reg yeah, BI. I, I'd like to so, unpack that a, a little bit, Canute, because you know I've I've heard people say before that. Um, you know, the, the failure to draw a distinction or a key line of demarcation between a broker and an investment advisor is, frankly, potentially harmful to either camp, right? But I know we're, we're thinking today about RIAs. So, I mean, tell me right. some of the, tell me some of the ways that, that RIAs are harmed by the sort of the blurring of the lines or the muddying of the waters. Is it, is it just reputational or, or how, how is it? Well, well, I mean, in a in a big sense, it is absolutely reputational because, and this is one of the one of the answers I get that you know investors can't tell the difference between in advisors and 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 brokers. And yes, they are they're correct in saying that, but that's that's not an explanation. That's not an, an excuse for this. I mean, I mean, I, I guess the, a parallel would be, you know, you know. If we go back in history and look at the progression of the of of the medical industry into a profession, there were a lot of quacks out there who were doing awful stuff in pushing uh, pushing medications or drugs under under the guise that they were doctors, and to you know and uh, and the yes the real doctors were harmed by that because it, it for for the same reason. Now you know I think that. When I say that many RIAs don't seem to think that this is important, I'll also say that I think many RIAs do see that what's happening and they do think it's important, but A, they're not sure what they can do about it, A, and B, frankly, you know, you look at the last 10 or 15 years, Kurt, and where have the assets been flowing? And so they've been flowing basically in one direction towards RIAs, so they can't feel the pain yet. And they can't feel the pain in terms of the damage to the indirect damage to their reputation. And, you know, at the same time, I know that a vast majority of the, of the independent RIAs, and that's the ones that I think of, the independent ones, you know, they, you know, they have an ongoing inflow of, 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 new, of new clients and they literally don't experience the, the harm of the bad reputation. So I, I get that. But you know, this is a this is a short. I think this is a short term phenomenon, and you don't have to be a a gloom and doomer to say that. You know, when you look at in a, in a broader sense, in a broader picture, what's happening out there in the marketplace. You look at some of the some of the work that that NASA, the state administrators, have done in terms of focusing on the finfluencers, for example. You know, there are there are some parallels to 1928 and 1929 that I don't think a lot of people want to look at, frankly. But that's 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 what's out there. So I don't know how good an answer to that your question is, but 
but anyway, those are some thoughts. You know, I mean, that that's helpful. It, it definitely makes it, I think, a little more understandable for folks who, who maybe just, just sort of can't put that advisor's hat on, right? It's not something they do every day. So they can't imagine, you know, how this right. rulemaking package would, would impact an RIA. I mean, I guess sort of on maybe sort of the, the practical side in terms of what happened as a result of, you know, Reg BI and the fiduciary standard interpretation, how is this impacting what RIAs do every day or have done or changed since the since the rulemaking the interpretation came out? I mean, we, we hear about it a lot, for example, when the SEC's Division of Examinations puts out its annual priorities list or, you know, periodically puts yeah. out a, an alert that shares some of their findings from examinations. But what are you hearing in terms of how this is impacting the industry? Well, I mean, you know, I'll be I'll be honest with you that that most of what I hear is, you know, is frankly that. And again, this is the world of independent RAs as to be distinguished between the dual registrants. That's that's another group. You know, they they sort of throw up their hands and say, you know, yes, I see that what they're doing is not good, but I'm not feeling it yet. I'm not feeling the harm of what is happening there yet because the macroeconomics is working in their favor, which I just which I just alluded to. So so I think I think many of them see that it's wrong. I've I've had an I've had an ingo, you know an influx of inquiries about this thing with CRS about you know are they really banning the word fiduciary from the form CRS? And I say effectively yes. And I use the word effectively because somebody somewhere in the bowels of the SEC, somebody will point out the fact that, oh, we're not banning the word fiduciary and then try to explain to you why that's not the case. But and, and in a narrow technical sense, they, they are correct. But from an effective point of view and nobody disagrees. There's not a compliance consultant. There's not a securities attorney. There's not a advisor advocacy group that I know that disagrees with the fact they have just banned the word fiduciary from this uh, from this form. So to answer your question, the vast majority of them are not feeling any pain, any negative negative effect of this. And, you know, and that's understandable. And you could say, well, that's a positive sign because investors' assets are still coming from the other side to the RIA side. And that is good. But, but in the meantime, the, 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 the fact that the fiduciary idea and the word fiduciary are being, are being erased from the regulatory perspective, you know, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a horrific development. And a lot of what we are fighting about, frankly. And, and so, what what does the future look like for you know independent RIAs under this regulatory framework? And I mean, that could mean anything from increased compliance costs to enforcement risk, or just you know, sort of the the business being eroded or diluted. What what do you think the world looks like in a few years? Well, I I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if I wasn't upbeat and optimistic about the future of RIAs, and particularly in the wealth management segment, particularly in the financial planning segment, because I absolutely believe that that those in in that segment of the broader RIA world, they're onto something that is so important and is so much needed and is so much appreciated by the marketplace that there that future should be should be great and when i say should be you know the you know the caveat there is whether what the what the major regulator of RIAs is doing to try to eliminate their their value proposition and I don't use those words. I don't use those words lightly. But that is essentially what what they are what they are trying to do. And 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 in this sense, and I you know I I know we want to be relevant. I know we want to be you know you know what deliverable do we have? But I think most people remember what Benjamin Franklin said when he left the Constitutional Convention about the Republic. And I wish that that sentiment was more top of mind of RIAs because Franklin said you've got a republic if you can keep it. Yes, those last four words were absolutely critical and Franklin was no dummy. And I say the same thing 
when I when I speak to young financial planners and Kurt, they are the most wonderful group of people that you can speak to because they're full of optimism. They're full of energy. They probably have read Dick Wagner's book, Financial Planning 3.0. I don't know whether that's been on your reading list, but I mean, it, it is a it is a just a wonderful introduction to the 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 importance and the power of the of the career that they've started. And so it is, you know, it is. It is great to hear them, but I all, but then I want to remind them that you know this this thing called fiduciary, this thing called you know, and they will use other terminology, which is fine to me as long as they keep the same principles. You know, it is here because, and many of them recognize it that the baby boomers in their firms who are thirty years older than them, they fought tooth and nail for this. You know, and, you know, going back to the Merrill Lynch rule as one, just one example. And they recognize that, but I know, I'm not sure they re- yet recognize, and I don't hold this against them because they're young, that, that they've got to, they've got to continue doing that work. Otherwise, it will not necessarily be there tomorrow because the powers that be will, will have their way. And, you know, it, and again, it is, it is the same thing as our founding fathers. You know, you, you don't have to be a, a scholar of American history to know that in 1773, the good money in Europe was not on the colonists, Kurt. That's not where the good money was being, you know, being, being bet. It was, it was on King George. And so I just think we need to remember that. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm, I'm actually glad that you, that you brought up the Merrill Lynch rule. Cause I think it's, it's some important context here. You know, this isn't the first time that there has been, you know, sort of a blurring between the role of brokers and investment advisors. And if we if we go back sort of to the early 2000s, there was this there was this case where the Financial Planning Association, which is a membership organization comprised of about 25,000 ish financial planners, they actually sued the SEC to set aside the Merrill Lynch rule and, and they won. So the Merrill Lynch rule, just really quickly, for those who don't know, this was known at the SEC as the rule called certain broker dealers deemed not to be investment advisors. And essentially the rule authorized a practice that emerged in the 90s through which broker dealers were allowed to charge asset-based fees without having to register as investment advisors. You know, I think today we certainly think about a transaction-based compensation as a hallmark of, of what is a broker dealer. Back then, this rule sort of a- allowed them to blur it. They let brokers earn asset-based fees. So in, in the lawsuit, the FPA argued successfully, right? the FPA said, if you're gonna let the brokers go out and earn what looked like investment advisory fees, then they should have to meet the same standard of conduct. And they won. Let me pause there, Knute. Uh, I tried to do that quickly, but what, what did I miss that you would highlight from that case? Well, I, well, you know, I, I, you know, thank you for, you know, thank you for putting it on your list of things to discuss because it it's important for at, at, at a top level for at least two reasons. And one is if you look at the individuals, the individual firms that were fighting to to get the SC to get the FPA to challenge the SEC. Kurt, they're all small business people. Some of them were literally, you know, one one person shows. And, you know, they discussed this for several years before they initiated the action in 2004. And, you know, and, you know, it and and it was controversial because the because some of the FPA members thought this was the stupidest damn thing you could ever do, frankly. And and, you know, but but there was a cohort there that said, no, this is right. When an, an individual uh, hires, retains an advisor, they should expect fiduciary care. That is a reasonable expectation. And so, so those, that segment of the FPA won, you know, and frankly, the, the uh, conventional wisdom at the time, Kurt, was these people are nuts. These people are crazy. What are you going to take the SEC to court? What, what's wrong with you? What, well, you know, so so, but that's what they did, and you know, and as you know, three and a half years later, in March two thousand seven, lo and behold, the FPA wins. They win the lawsuit, and so you know, so I I think from a from a lesson of you know ordinary people doing extraordinary things, 
and fighting and beating the far larger powers uh, in a strategic way, you know, I think that's I think that's the first lesson, frankly. I think the second lesson is, you know, unfortunately, unfortunately, winning one victory is not is not always enough because, you know, since then, as, as you well know, that victory has been has been overwhelmed by other actions by the industry and of the SEC to basically make it moot. And I, you know, I, 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 I use the word moot. And I think that again, Reg BI is the, is the culmination of that, frankly. Uh, so, but I still, it, it is still an important lesson. And just as a sidebar, when I was looking into this, because we just had a panel of February and, and fiduciary September on this issue, what I found from one of the individuals there is that the institutional history within the FPA itself does not include this lawsuit. It, there is no institutional history with it. And I said, are you kidding me? I mean, this is a major historic development, and it apparently has basically disappeared from the FBA. And so anyway, I'm glad that we had our panel on that. And, and anyway, I, 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 reiter- I, I, I reiterate that I think it's very important. I mean, that that's very interesting that that, that has sort of fallen out of, because as you say, it's it's not every day. That, that an organization like that goes up against the SEC and, and wins. And, and on an issue that, that I think is probably really core to, to some of the issues that are important to them as an, as an organization. I mean, you, you sort of alluded to the fallout from this case it, to the extent that you would call it that. But I mean, what, what has really happened since then? You said Reg BI is kind of like the culmination of things going in the wrong direction. Well, yes, I... I, I look back, it's 2022, I look back to 15 year. And, you know, in fact, when I was giving some remarks about this last month, I, I alluded to my seventh grade history teacher, Mr. Edwards, because Mr. Edwards ta- taught American history at the revolution from 1763 to 1783. And it was based on dates and it was based on what happened on those dates. And I'm saying that if you really want to understand where we are today in 2022, you've got to do the same thing vis-a-vis vis-a-vis the SEC and vis-a-vis the development of, of fiduciary. And I start with 2007 as, as the high mark. And from then on, Kurt, it's been basically downhill in, in my view. And you can start with chairman of the SEC in her remarks in 2009, and you can, you can follow for that, that, for that decade to see what the SEC has done to, to water down, to minimize, to almost marginalize the what I call the classic concept, the classic idea of fiduciary, and uh, that's been a ten-year-long march, and 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 uh, and we have uh, and we have some papers on that. But uh, you know, uh, the you know the point being that it you know nobody should have been surprised at what the SEC proposed by, with Reg BI in 2018, and nobody should be surprised at what was finalized in 2019 because you know this is at least 10 years in 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 the works and of course if you read professor arthur Laby's work you know he goes back to to the to to the 70s and 80s with the with the elimination of fixed brokerage fees and you know as the starting point but really i i think it's the last 10 years to see what the sec has done and to get us to get us here today such that uh, what we have in in reg bi and CRS should be no surprise whatsoever. And and what we have there is is basically the their efforts. And you know you know you, you talk about I can't remember the precise word you use about the line between advice and 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 brokerage. But I say that the, the larger problem is not that the line has been erased, but but that the the idea and the principles of fiduciary are being erased as we speak. And and I think that's that is that is that is seen in in CRS. And then even and then they've even gone one step further in sort of eliminating the word in that in in that uh, in the CRS. And I think that I I, I want to point attention to they 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 the staff did this in this in 760 words in March of this year to explain why that the word fiduciary is as they called it quote unquote extraneous. And, uh, you know, I, I think that they probably were more blunt, direct and concise than they intended to be, because it really lays it out there. What they're thinking is 
and I urge all RIAs to read that if they if they think that there isn't a problem that we face today. So, I mean, with, with those comments actually kind of help help some other comments you've made recently make a lot of sense, at least to me, right? So I was just reading an article that, that Mark Sheff wrote for Investment News. Mark's actually a, a, a guest who's been on the podcast before as well. But you, you said in a recent interview with Mark Sheff that you've, that you've lost faith in the SEC and that you fear they will continue on this path of eroding the fiduciary standard. So, I mean, I guess we've talked a little bit about the future before. You said you're kind of optimistic, but in terms of what might happen at the SEC, you know, what are your what are your concerns in terms of things that they might do or not do? Yeah, well, okay, yeah, just 30 seconds of context for that remark to to Mark, to Mark and he's absolutely he absolutely re- recorded correctly. With this new SEC, it should never be forgotten what how someone could look at the background and the resume of the current SEC chair and say, huh, this guy is different. Gary Gensler is different. And he's different in about three crucial ways that separate him from every SEC chair, in my mind, until the early years of Arthur Levitt, uh, frankly, and that Gary Gensler had a demonstrated record that he would go against the, the the forces of Wall Street to get what he wanted. He did that. That he did this at the CFTC, a, a, as you know. A number, you know, number two. He had shown that he didn't want to go back into Wall Street after he had become one of the youngest, the youngest partners at Goldman Sachs and had done very well there. And so, what did he do? He went to MIT. So that was that was another sign. And the third thing is, you know, listen, there's a lot a lot said about being the smartest guy in the room. But Gary Gensler in many meetings probably is the smartest guy in the room. So he knew what had to be done. He was willing. He was in a position to be able to do that and was willing to tell the folks at Wall Street, I don't care what you think. So that's how I looked at him 18 months ago. So the the degree to which Gary Gensler was such a different candidate and is cannot be forgotten and and then you know in a sense it's not, it doesn't matter that he's a d or an r but he happens to be a d and he's in that administration and that is helpful but what i look at i look at frankly the the last 7 or 8 months and look at three data points in terms of fiduciary and reg bi I look at that March 30th FAQ regarding form CRS. I look at the first case brought against based on Reg BI, and frankly, and then I look at the, the, the staff report of August regarding conflicts of interest. And I look at those three data points and say, huh, Jay Clayton could have done that just as well. And I mean that, and I, I don't say that lightly. I don't say that lightly at all. So, you know, that on that basis, I think that that anybody that is, that is thinking that you know that we can have that we have faith in the SEC going forward, you know, has to rethink that idea, frankly. So, I mean, at this stage, look, I know you know typically a think tank like yours, one of the main things that they do is is reaching out to agencies, reaching out to lawmakers, and advocating positions. But I mean, do you see value in that at this point? Are you are you making trips to the tenth floor? You know the SEC. You know, you know the SEC is the SEC, and you know, you, you know they have a unique and important position. That being said, you know, in terms of looking out more broadly into the environment and being optimistic, look at the state administrators, Kurt, and look at NASA, and you know, there you find regulators that understand what it means. You know, that actually understand what we are talking about, that who understand what other fiduciary adv- advocates are talking about. And uh, in, in a way that the SEC has demonstrated, it doesn't have a clue. It does not have a clue what we're talking about. So what, so one, one reason to be optimistic is to, is to look at the states and say, what can we accomplish at the states that cannot be accomplished at the SEC? You know, the, the single most important piece of research, perhaps in the last five years, came out from NASA last November when they did an evaluation of Reg BI. And it was pretty straightforward and clear. You know, they basically said the broker dealers haven't changed much of anything and they're still doing the same thing they did three or four years ago. And so, and you know, this is based on 
extensive research and, and data gathering from, from numerous states. So one reason to be optimistic is to look at NASA. The other reason to be optimistic is to, is to look at the degree to which there, the, um, the entrepreneurial spirits have, have energized a lot of new RIAs who are doing things and are, are, are connecting with investors in a way that I don't think we saw five or 10 years ago. And that they are, you know, they are becoming, I think, the new poster child for what it means to be in, what it means to be an RIA. So I think the and 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 with the advent of social media, we can get a mess. We can get messages across to a broader array of investors that we couldn't do five or ten years ago. So that's another reason to be optimistic. And then you know that what what is happening at at the Department of Labor, which we haven't talked about. Uh, uh, frankly, but you know, the Department of Labor staff understand what it means to be a fiduciary, and I don't know how this is going to come out right now, but at least, at least they understand it and are fighting for it. So there's another reason to be optimistic, frankly. So, so, so there are three things top of mind. <laughs> I like it. I love it. I love an optimistic tone. You know, the the point about the state, the state regulators, is, is an interesting one. And actually, I know you were recently on the Investment News podcast with Jeff Benjamin and Bruce Kelly, and you mentioned something on there that I thought was really interesting. And you sort of held up the the AICPA, the, the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants. Uh, we had Tom Hood on to talk about that a few weeks ago in episode 70. But you held out the AICPA as an example of, I think, what a, a model or a regulatory framework could look like for RIAs. So, I mean, tell me a little bit about how you're thinking about that. Well, the, I think the AICPA is a model in, in, the, in, in, in the specific sense of how does, a, how does a trade, and if you look at the independent experts, we in financial planning, financial advice, we're not a profession. We don't have the characteristics of a prof- profession. So what do, what do we have to do? This is all about how you become a profession. And AICPA has, is a good example of, of, of the fact that you, you have to do it through the states. You can't do it on a federal level. And, you know, and this is not new and this is not radical. This is the way professions come to life. This is how they develop. It's through the states. And, you know, there's lots of literature out there that, that support it. So, so the, 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 to me, the point of AICPA, AICPA is just a, is a good example that is parallel with financial planning. AICPA has its own financial planning segment. And there are a lot of CPAs who have gotten their 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 designation on financial planning there. And so I think it's a relevant place for for we in financial planning to look at. And there's going to be a there is a longstanding discussion about whether it's it should be done through the federal level or the state level. And you know, I, I, and on some level, I don't understand the discussion because there is no case that I can see that for a for a real trade to become a real profession in terms of taking it through the federal level. And now, just on top of that historic perspective, to look at what the SEC has done and to look at what has been to go through Congress, to think that that's the way to to advance a profession. Frankly, Kurt, I don't, I don't know what. I can't make any sense of that myself. And I have reached out to several people and said, help me understand why this is the case. I frankly, it, it doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. So that was the context which I was mentioning AICPA. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I really think it, it's, a, it's a good point. It's a point well taken. And, and maybe that could be, that could be the future of, uh, you know, of, of your trade or, or your profession, perhaps, whichever word you use. I think... A sober analysis of the landscape says it's the best option right now. And I, I hear the arguments from the other side to say that oh, we got to do it on a federal level. M- many of these arguments come from CFP board. And, and so that's, that is one side of it. But it, just based on the recent record, I, I just had literally don't understand how you can come to the conclusion that that's the best way to advance a trade into a profession. Yeah, I, it makes sense to me. I mean, I'm I'm an attorney, so I, you know, I'm a member of state bars. I understand exactly the model you're talking about. 
Well, Canute, look, I want to I want to give you a chance for any last words. Anything I should have asked you? What, what have I missed that you would want to tell our listeners? Well, I think, and I think that you already underscored what I said that, notwithstanding the the situation with the SEC, there are so many reasons to be optimistic about the future of financial advice and financial planning, and that's what I think the that's the that is the takeaway that I want to I want to leave people with, and uh, you know, and and the context of. Of, of dwelling on the SEC, to me, is the context of, 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 of finding other ways to advance this thing called fiduciary, which is centuries old and which is well understood and which the Supreme Court understood it. And, uh, but, you know, but, but we've got to find other ways to, to advance it because, uh, because the SEC right now is not the way to do it. And I think that's what the record shows. But but the 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 work of financial planners and financial advisors, and I'm I'm pr- predominantly focused on the individual market, the retail market, and and thinking about investors. I mean that is that is extremely that is that is extremely bright. And I think that's the takeaway for me. I mean that that's great. I, you know I think maybe one of the ways to to advance the message is through. Through education, we promised we were going to talk a little bit about fiduciary September before we rounded out the episode today. So, given that it is just September is just closed, it, it's not too late. The Institute hosts what they call fiduciary September every year. It is the largest annual conversation on the importance of fiduciary advice, and it features scholars, advisors, and former regulators who speak to the Institute on webinars and panels about fiduciary issue issues. So, you know, can you tell us tell us a little bit more? How can people find out about the about Fiduciary September? What kind of programs are available? Right. Well, the first thing to find out more about is to go to our website, www.thefiduciaryinstitute.org. And it's you can link right from the homepage into we have, I think, nine nine of our ten panel videos up there that are that you that you can access. And that will take you onto YouTube, and so you can see the programming that we've done. You can see the individuals that are involved in our in our group, and you know, and 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 part of that, I, I want to say that that speaking on behalf of our board and the many advisors who are actively involved in what we do, I am so proud of the fact that we have some of the best known uh, fiduciary luminaries in the in the industry out there. I mean, I, I can't say enough for, for Phyllis Borzi, what she did at the Department of Labor to raise the awareness of fiduciary. I can't say enough for Louise Aguilar, who served at the SEC until five, seven years ago as one of the longest serving SEC commissioners in terms of his understanding and appreciation for fiduciary and his willingness to be associated with what we're doing. So that that means a lot to us, and so that's the best way to begin. Our whole our, our whole experience is on our website, and um, I, I so I encourage people to go there. We have just and just one last thing: we have just come out. We're actually going to come out tomorrow with a new. I call it a pamphlet. I think of Thomas Paine and Common Sense from from history. I call it a pamphlet. To to sort of in a in a very brief time sort of explain what we do and 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 why this matters and I and we feature there Winston Churchill talking about defending democracy as World War II was about and the and why he did that and how he did that and I think that there's a parallel there in terms of defending and preserving fiduciary principles so so we've got the image of Winston Churchill out there. Uh, related, associated with with what we're what what we're doing in defending fiduciary principles, and so anyway, that uh, I think to get on our website is a great place to begin. Yeah, absolutely. Would highly recommend to all of our listeners to go and check out some of the content from Fiduciary September, or keep an eye out for this new pamphlet. Again, it is the Fiduciary Institute. Dot org. You can find all those materials and other great content there. Knut, I've really enjoyed the conversation today. Thank you so much for coming on the Insecurities Podcast. 
Well, listen, Kurt, thank you for, for having me. I appreciate the chance to sort of tell a little bit more of our story. And I look forward to staying in contact with you going forward. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. And a special thanks to our guest, Knut Rostad. As always, we would like to hear from you with any of your thoughts about the Insecurities Podcast and with recommendations for any topics we should cover on future episodes. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. And you can follow me at Enforce underscore update. Of course, you can follow my co-host Chris at CPA. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. We'll hear from you soon. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI. PLI.